Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action and pay less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. You'll be able to watch all of your favourite races, including Grand Tours, Monuments, Classics, Major Stage Races and more, live and ad-free on GCN+. That's including the resumption of the rivalry between Wout van Aert and Machi van der Poel at the Classics opener, Umlot Het Nieuwsblad. That's on the 25th of February. And Strada Bianchi on the 4th of March, where they'll also have Tajay Pojakar to contain with. Along with all the live action GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros like Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens, so you never need to miss a key cycling moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu slash cyclist15. Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. It's fun, isn't it? I get to say that this week because Anthony's not here. Um, where is Anthony, you ask? Well, right now he is wielding a sledgehammer in Dublin, smashing up his studio in a peak of rage um, at having missed this episode. Uh, no, of course I jest. He is smashing up his studio, but only to build a better one because Anthony loves podcasts and he wants to have a nicer place to do them. And I'm quite jealous. And apparently he went to Belfast yesterday to go and source a desk. So how will the half live? I can only imagine that it's made from the reclaimed timbers of the Titanic. Um, but anyway, moving swiftly on, our guest today is Manny Arthur, who in 2018 set up the Black Cyclists Network, or BCN, as it's often known. Um, and it's a grassroots cycling club with an aim to make cycling a more diverse and inclusive sport. Manny's also a top-level rider. He represented Ghana um, a number of times in international competition, including the Commonwealth Games. Um, he came to cycling quite late, so it's a story that lots of us can relate to. I certainly can. Um, there are definitely uh, those rides where it took a while to get into wearing Lycra, put it that way, and it took a long time before I took the peak off my mountain bike helmet. But we all get there in the end, don't we? Because it turns out Lycra is really comfy and really well suited to cycling in. And after a while, um, we lose our inhibitions. And people like Manny are there to help us do that even quicker. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Manny, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thank you for having me, guys. It's a, it's a pleasure. Manny, this is one of the fastest growing cycling clubs. Black Cyclist Network is one of the fastest growing cycling clubs in the world, I believe. What was the inspiration to start this club? Well, um, I wanted to create a segregated um, identity-based cycling club that excluded plenty of people who were not black. And that's the reason why I set up Black Cyclist Network. No, I'm, ki I'm kidding, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the main reason why I set up um, BCN, as we're known, in 2018 was because um, I started cycling in 2009. And for, you know, well over, like for a decade, and it's, it became really apparent to me that 
the space just wasn't, you know, that welcoming for riders that kind of looked like me. So in 2018, I mustered the courage to to set up BCN. And I initially just created it as a space for, you know, black people to sort of enter the sport of cycling, get to understand the culture and etiquette and all of that kind of stuff. And then sort of build them up um, to then go join their local cycling clubs. That's the genesis of the project. But as as time wore on, um, it became really popular. And now we've got over 130 members. We come in all shades, black, white, you know, Asian. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. Um, the main goal is just, you know, to be an, a nice, lovely sort of place for, you know, cyclists to come together, ride bikes and um, have a good coffee break. So you mentioned there that you came to cycling in 2009. How old are you now? Oh, um, 37. I'm going to be 38 um, this um, July. So you came to cycling, I mean, way, you came to cycling way later. I know. I was a footballer before cycling. Yeah, well, great. So yeah, you came to cycling much later. Unless you were just like some genetic freak of nature, you've got to be pretty sporty in the first place to then move into a sport like cycling and, and do it to a high level, which you do. So you came to cycling from football, but why was it the case that that only kind of happened in 2009? Was it just football, 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 something happened in football and you had to move into the bike or was there some other reason why you transitioned? Um, great question. I don't know if you've heard um, Bradley Wiggins allude to this in the past, but I was probably one of those kids that gave him a hard time <laughs> whenever he rode around in his Lycra. Um, that's that's kind of how I saw sort of road cycling back in the day. It was just all football, football, football for me. And then later on, um, when I realised I'm never going to become a professional footballer, um, I kind of started playing, you know, Sunday league football. And then I started, um, I would commute to work, actually. And you know what London trains are like? It gets super packed and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, let me try, like, you know, and ride them a bike to work. And and that's how it just started, really. I started commuting to work. And the funny thing is that, like, um, on a Friday, I'll take Fridays off because I'll just be like, oh, I'm tired. I've done like 60 miles this week. <laughs> Manny, I came from a football background as well. And I remember coming into cycling, like my whole life probably up until I was 20 was football, football, football. And that's a very familiar environment because all my friends were footballers. We all watched football. We all played football. I had so many friends and other football teams. There was nothing I didn't know about football. Like the expectations when I was starting to move up the levels, I kind of knew what it was like to play in the first team. I knew what the inside of the dressing room was like. I knew there was going to be no real surprise thrown at me in terms of etiquette. Then I moved across to cycling and we've these categories of things. There's stuff we know, there's stuff we don't know. But cycling fell into this third category for me. It was like stuff I didn't even know I didn't know. Like no one tells you your helmet and your shoes are meant to be the same color. No one tells you to point to a hole. This was a whole industry of stuff I knew absolutely nothing about. And that was really intimidating at the start. And I nearly walked away from cycling because of that. How much of a challenge is that additionally for minority groups? Because you have so few people around you to shine a light on what that pathway looks like. That That is a fantastic question. Um, you're right. It's like entering cycling is like almost going into like a different country. It's a whole new language that you've got to pick up. There's, you know, so much to sort of understand about, you know, especially when you, you, you enter the space of group riding. It's like, oh, I've got to be responsible for everyone around me. And also how you're received. It's, it's just ingrained in us as cyclists that 
when we meet other cyclists, right? And and this is a um, a phrase that I, I coined over the years. It's like the biggest compliment another cyclist can give you is to say that they trust your wheel. You know, that that phrase means, obviously, they think you're fast enough that they, they want to draft <laughs> behind you. But they'll also give you the, you know, the thumbs up to say, I think you're safe enough. I trust that, you know, you're safe enough for me to want to sort of sit behind you. And that's a huge thing. And I think as cyclists, naturally, when we see other cyclists, we literally download them when we meet them. I'm looking at everything that you're wearing and I'm making that calculation in my head subconsciously. Um, and I, I think we do it out of self-preservation. So, you know, when I meet a new cyclist, I'm looking at them thinking, do they fit the pro profile? The, the, the closer they are to looking professional, I give them a bit more of the benefit of the doubt and a bit more of my trust. Does that make sense? And if they look a bit like they're new to cycling, then I am going to be wary because the last thing I want to do is crash. And and that's the basis of a lot of cycling groups. So for a beginner going into that space, you go in there and you've got mismatch apparel. They're going to literally figure that out real quick. And before you know it, they might be standoffish with you. And you being white entering, you know, going into a cycling club, you're not going to be like, you already have that anxiety going into it because you're entering that new space. For someone like me, I'm going into that new space and I'm going to have the same anxiety. But if I'm treated differently, I kind of walk away thinking, is it racial? When it just might just be the fact that, you know, of what I've just explained to you, it's, it could be that, you know, um, the guys just kind of brush me up because they're like, oh, well, we don't really trust you. And, you know, you look a bit too sketchy for us. You look too green. Maybe come back in a couple of years. And that's like my initial experience when I went to my first cycling club. I got a similar thing. And at this moment, at, at this point, I'm still not sure if it was a, if it was racial or not. But I went to my first cycling club and I kept being told, you know, we're a racing team. And I didn't quite get it until like after the ride. So we sat there in the cafe after the ride. And then, you know, um, the ride leader of the group was like, yeah, you know, we're, you know, we're a racing team. And I was just sort of like, I was getting a hint then. I was like, and then we saw a black guy ride past and he goes, oh, you should probably, you know, join that fella. And then, and then it dawned on me. I was like, wait, this whole three hour ride, this guy's just been popping me off. Like, you know, <laughs> he, he don't want me to be here. And so it left a really sort of, you know, um, bad taste in my mouth because I mean I've been you know I've played football non-league all around London and in parts of the country and I've heard all kinds of stuff in the terraces so I've got thick skin you know so it doesn't really like so I'm more sort of what's the word I, I, I can sort of take a lot of that better than most people but it really did hit me and I was like I almost I would have probably never joined another cycling club if it wasn't for a guy called um, Gray Tunnock who rides for Fisbury Park, he saw me and he was like, hey, come join my club. And I was still hesitant um, until he eventually was like, oh, you, you know, come on, you've got to. And he pushed me and then I went and then that was my entry. And if you're a new cyclist specifically, like cycling clubs are where you start your education. You never do anything on your own. You don't pick up anything on your own. It's only when you go to a cycling club, your education then gets, you know, elevated to a much more higher sort of level. And you become to understand a lot more about cycling. And I think for a lot of black people, just to segue into that, the constant anecdote that I get from a lot of black riders whenever they come to BCN is, I've been riding five, 10 years, sometimes 15 years by myself. And I go, why have you been riding by yourself all these years? Why don't you just join the, your local cycling club? 
And quite often the comment I hear is, oh, you know, I, I didn't think I'd be welcome. So a lot of Black people have been going through that kind of phase because there's that cultural element. In football, for example, these same people, they'll have no problem phoning their local football club and going, can I come and join you? Because there is a culture there. They understand from like, you know, West Brom with this, the three degrees, then Liverpool, John Barnes. If you meet a certain Black person of a certain age, they probably will support a certain football club yeah. because of, you know, uh, what was happening at that particular time. But they understand the dressing room and all that kind of stuff. So that sort of curtain is revealed. So they, it's not alien to them, that world. Whereas recycling is quite alienating to, uh, you know, um, to a lot of Black people, um, especially here in the UK. So it's a bit of a long run. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, where do you think that difference in sort of like the lack of acceptance, um, the culture of the lack of acceptance, say, in cycling kind of comes from? Because I often think of other sports and just how much further, how much more advanced, I know, a sport like, uh, well, football is. That is just, you know, the world's global sport. In terms of diversity, I mean, it's still terribly undiverse in the grand scheme of things. But if you compare it to cycling, it is light years ahead. Yet cycling is probably in terms of its uh, competition and professionalization as old as football. And cycling also had black riders from day one. You had, you know, you had Major Taylor in 1899 being a world track champion. And you even had guys from the Algiers and Tunisia and places competing in the Tour de France before the war. So there have been, you know, there was almost a kind of initial blueprint and a, a kind of like wider net. And then if you sort of look at the Tour de France as a great kind of uh, litmus test, the first guy to finish the Tour de France, first black rider to finish the Tour de France was in 2011. <laughs> so what happened in between? And what, what do you, what's your take on why cycling is, is so much slower to have kind of opened its doors, I guess, to the rest of the world, just that, you know, the rest of the world being anyone that isn't white European? Oof, that's a, that's a heavy question. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think there's a lot of um, circumstances uh, that... I guess it's holding back progress for, for a lot of black people um, within cycling, especially at the elite level. Now, at the sort of like amateur, you know, club level, it's picking up. We also, I guess we, we also got to see, we also got to sort of have this discussion in proportion to, you know, to other sports. So, for example, for me, cycling has always been a bit of a niche sport. You know, even... In, in, in a white European environment, you know, um, in Europe, it's always been niche. So we got to think about, about it in terms of that skill. You know, football is a global sport. Anyone can pick up football and play. So then you look, you go into the black community and you're like, okay, it's already a niche in the white community. How then, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the black community, then it's going to be even more scarce. And I think that's the reason why, you know, there is that kind of, um, that length of time between someone like Major Taylor and then you got Nelson Bells in the US, we got, you know, um, um, Maurice Burton here in the 1970s. But it took, it, you know, we've not really seen anyone like Maurice for a very long time. I think one of the catalysts, one of the reasons for it is obviously, you know, the sport, a lot of people sort of don't necessarily say this out in like, out but they don't speak they don't say the obvious thing and i think the obvious thing is that cycling in itself has become a really expensive sport to to take part in i mean you go to, down to your um you take your bike to the local bike shop 
just to uh, remove your handlebars to charge you 100 quid nowadays because, you know, you've got these stupid internally routed cable systems and it's just like, you know, all for like 0.5%, you know, savings in efficiency and, you know, um, aerodynamics. It just, it's just silly. So you've got all of that, all of these factors. And so it makes it very difficult, you know, for black people to sort of get into it, into, into the sport per se. Um, the, I'm kind of rambling on a little bit, so sorry if I'm going off on a tangent. It's just, I guess the best the best thing to do is maybe rather than just to look at it from such a broad scale, maybe we can sort of condense it and look at it from, you know, like smaller chunks, smaller bite size, because there's so much that you can talk about, like at the highest level, for example, all the countries that do well in cycling at the moment from African countries um, and Black majority countries are, you know, um, riders from nations that were colonized by European countries that, you know, had a cycling culture. So, for example, Eritreans colonized by the Italians and, you know, the Italians brought cycling over there. And that is, you know, one of the major um, reasons why Eritrea do so well in cycling at the moment. Um, you've got, obviously, you know, the Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, the French connection, Rwanda a little bit later, but I think those are the basis for why those countries at the moment are excelling, as opposed to other countries um, in in Africa. We have this campaign in Ireland, and it's called "Can't See Me, Can't Be Me," and it's the idea of putting role models that you want to aspire to in places of prominence. So the important one we have over here and who heads the campaign is Katie Taylor. She's the best female boxer of all time. When Katie started fighting, she had to fight in drag. Her parents dressed her up as a dude and she would go into male boxing competitions because there didn't exist female boxing. It was thought it wasn't ladylike to be a female boxer. So she started going to the lads' competitions dressed as a lad and she started winning the competitions. And then at a certain point, the judges are like, this is crazy. We know this is a girl. We know this is Katie Taylor. So she defined the whole new genre of cycling. But I'm, I'm wondering how important it is in these communities to have people like you. Because when I was getting started cycling, I, was, I had a lot of friends who were footballers. Football typically pulls from more working class backgrounds. And I was terrified to wear Lycra because I just got the piss taken out of me so much. So I used to wear my football shorts over my Lycra cycling shorts and then change when I got out into the countryside. So you have this kind of double header going on because you have obstacles because there's no one there. So it's the kind of can't see me, can't be me for people of color. But also people of color are typically you know, having less access to role models. And then that's compounded by the laddish piss take culture of, you know, if you wear Lycra, you're going to struggle to fit in with your peer group. Is that double header something you think is important? Or is it mainly just one of those reasons? I, I, I think you probably just nailed it on the head. Um, that was, it was a very similar experience to me because I come from like a working class background. And I'm from that, you know, grime music generation. So everyone is a conformist to a degree, like expected to fit a certain stereotype if you're growing up in, you know, inner city London. Um, I remember like here in Lincoln Park, Papa Roach and those kind of going, oh man, this is so good. 
and never telling my friends about it until Jay-Z started working with Linkin Park. You know, and then all of a sudden my friends are like, oh, this is great. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But when I was listening to it like three years ago, you were taking a piss out of me. Um, it's very similar. So, you know, from where I'm from, like I said, you know, very similar in terms of, yeah, you get, you know, you be, um, when I go to, to play football, for example, um, I definitely wouldn't wear Lycra. Like, <laughs> I'd just wear baggy shorts and then, you know, go in the dressing room and, and then afterwards I'll, I'll just, you know, Hackney Marshes, get on the bike. I was treated pretty much. People kind of like, like, I guess I'm a strong-minded individual and I'm very sort of independent in that sense. I'm not really a conformist per se, so I kind of back myself and not everyone's going to have that sort of confidence to be able to be like, oh, okay, I'm chartering my own path. But I, initially, yeah, people kind of looked at me like I was a bit of an oddball. Like, so, no, like, and, and that's not even the right term, <laughs> I guess. And and so, like, you know, people just be, oh, that that's just, you know, that's money. And, and some of my Jamaican friends would be like, yo, this the cyclist, man. <laughs> and, and that's what I used to get. But over time, like, it kind of grew on them. And then people were like, yeah, you know, you're so fit. Like, how do you, like, you know, every time, you know, They'll be phoning me like, we need you this Sunday because we need our midfield general. But you also need a massive confidence to do that as well. Yeah. Like, that's not for everybody. Some people just won't have that confidence to... Because I can totally see that from, you know, I was quite a good footballer locally. So when I made that transition across to cycling, you're already carrying a little bit of that street credit where people respect you inside the peer group. Yeah. So you're less likely, you, you get the piss taken out of you a bit, but you're less likely to get aggressive piss taken to the point of bullying. But I'm thinking of another kid who maybe wasn't as respected in the peer group, wasn't a good footballer, which is kind of the currency. Uh, you know, are you a good footballer? Or are you not? It's the currency in a lot of working class areas. Yeah. For them to make the transition across, it can go from light piss taken to a totally insurmountable obstacle pretty fast. Absolutely. And I'm quite fortunate, you know, like I said, in my, in my sort of group, I was always the midfield general. I was the one that sort of, you know, took charge in the dressing room. So when people saw me, it was like, okay, like, you know, they didn't take the, they took the piss, but it wasn't that bad, you know. And, and obviously over time, you know, some people then start to see what I was doing. And then, you know, they were like, oh, you know, like, it's really cool. Like, let me see the bike, you know, what, you know, and they were curious about it in a positive way. But yeah, it's definitely a hindrance for from people from my community and from working class background getting into sport or cycling, having to wear the lycra. So like you said, you know, um, for people to be able to see you, it makes a huge difference. And I think for a very long time in, in my space, especially in when it comes to road cycling in, in the um, London community, there weren't that many people that kind of looked like me. So I literally, I was like out there on my own pretty much. But now... We've got a whole community of, you know, of not just riders that are coming through, but we've got clubs, you know, individuals that through lockdown came to BCN are now like literally, you know, they've started their own little cycling clubs and stuff like that. And so that's really good to see because it goes to show that, you know, people are growing in confidence and stuff like that. But seeing this really believing, and I think for a lot of the time, not everyone is going to have their, what's the word? And the courage to want to do something, to want to step out there and and take on the responsibility to to do something. Um, so quite often they just they're looking for someone to kickstart something, and I think that's what we're seeing. And I kind of like compare the rise of cycling in the black community here in London 
to the creation of like the CS11 and the cycling infrastructure in London. Initially, at first, when you know we we're creating sort of um, um, segregated bike lanes for for cyclists, uh, you know everyone from cabbies to you know bus drivers were all up in arms about it. To shopkeepers, owners going, "Oh, this is this is useless," you know, um, use of taxpayers' money. No one is going to these cyclists are not going to take it up. But guess what? As soon as it was created, that space was created. You saw people flock to it because all of a sudden it was like, oh. Now, you know, people sitting at home thinking, well, I don't always want to catch a train. I would like to take a bus, but I don't want to have to jostle for position with uh, with vehicles. And I don't want to have near-death experiences on the bike. So now it's just like all those people that had that reservation, all of a sudden like, they can chart a path direct to work where they barely have to, you know, have to have an encounter with a car. And so people then start using their bikes. And, and sometimes that's what it is, really. And I thought that's the kind of... I had that sort of thinking when I started BCN. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling... With Ketone IQ, your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, Then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then HVMN's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour. And you can find it in all the usual places. You do a lot of your riding in London. You are a Londoner and you meet up at Regent's Park, which if anyone listening to this show doesn't know, is it's part, I think Regent's Park's like one of the top five Strava segments in the world. It's literally the Mecca. You've, the funny thing about that is in the middle of a city and you see people driving their cars with their bikes on top to park up to ride around whatever it is, like a 4.4-kilometer circle um, with uh, a bit of a zoo around the outside. Uh, but anyway, it's a, it's a scene. It's a scene within itself. And you're riding there, and I, I used to ride around there all the time, and you get to see the same faces. But you're more than just a face. You're a famous person. And there's a shit ton of cyclists that go there. And I just wonder what it's like for you when you're sort of riding around that area because there must be an awful weight of responsibility on your shoulders to do everything from, you know, not jump a red light to make sure you treat everybody courteously because you're Manny Arthur, you're BCN, and someone's going to have a camera phone or an opinion and the Twitter account. And, you know, there's only two steps away from 
getting into you know someone be like, oh, I just saw Manny doing this thing. How how does it feel having that kind of responsibility, ostensibly the responsibility of of fame as well as being a role model? That's a that's a good question. Um, I don't really see myself as famous like that. <laughs> I, I guess, I, I, you know what, I, I'll say I've always been exhibiting that kind of behavior anyway. So for me, it's not a huge, like, I, you know, I'm not one to jump red lights or do anything that kind of silly. So for me, I've always sort of been that kind of person. And I'm a, a bit of a, I'm also a bit of a people pleaser. So for me, it's never like, it, it, the transition hasn't been too hard. And before like all of this sort of, blew up and I became nationally recognized in a way. I was already recognized within the London scene because like I said, you know, I started riding my bike in 2009 um, and I started competing in 2014. So Regent Spark has always been kind of my home. And so all it was pretty much was, oh, you know, new people are coming into the sport, you know, because of BCN. And the hardest thing that I, I sort of have to deal with really on a day-to-day basis is um, responding to people's text messages. <laughs> I look at my Facebook sometimes and I've got like, you know, a ton of messages in my Facebook and I'm like, oh my God, like I didn't even know like this existed, <laughs> you know? So I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know, if um, you message me and I don't message back, you know, please do not take it to heart. Like, because I, I get so many messages sometimes from people and I, I don't know where to look sometimes. So that that's, that's the, that's the hardest thing but other than that I think you know that we've got a really good community I think coming from a football background Anthony and you know this like we do all kinds of stuff and I think when I got into cycling I was just like wow like cyclists are amazing people I don't feel like I felt I felt a community like this you know I love I love the banter in football <laughs> but you know when it comes to cyclists generally I, I some of the best people I've ever come across so yeah it's it's easy for me I guess uh, my only issue is just staying off um, some of the stupid um, Instagram fights and stuff like that on on social media. <laughs> Manny, how so? We're seeing people of color in prominent marketing campaigns at the moment. I'm thinking of Rafa and Duke Agyapong, Corey Williams, and his brother Justin Williams. How much of that is ticking what's culturally appropriate and diversity box now versus substance to it. Like we're in a world of, you know, unbelievable amount of tokenism and virtue signaling. Is it enough to have people of color as prominent faces in marketing campaigns or are we past that and now need to move to a place of people of color in prominent positions on the boards of these companies? Because that's where the actual change is going to happen. That's where the meaningful change is going to happen. I think that's a good, really good question. For me, I always say like, uh, sometimes people get hung up about the name Black Cyclist Network. And ideally, I would love to be in a world where that, you know, um, a club called Black Cyclist Network wasn't a necessity. And I think, how do we look at that? And how do we, how do we make that change? And I think one of the, I guess you're right, one of the things that we can do is try and just move away from that tokenism. I'm really protective about my brand, about BCN, because of that kind of stuff. I don't want it to be, you know, tokenistic. So I'm kind of really mindful about who we work with and what, what you know, what we get out of it. And I think it's it's difficult for a lot of um, riders, you know, black riders who, for whatever reason, you know, you got to look at it from an individual sort of perspective. Some of these guys, it's like they've got, they go from nothing to all of a sudden, oh, you know what, you know, you get, you know, companies going, I want to sponsor you. 
Do you want to be an ambassador? And it's like, we would give you free stuff. And they go, oh shit, <laughs> I'm a bike messenger, you know? And it's like, and that mistake happened, you know, and people all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, you're a cigarette firm. Okay, fine. I'll take that. You know, you, <laughs> you, you sell, you know, alcohol. Well, I, fine. I'll take that. And it's like, so it, it, I can't really blame individuals per se for accepting things that doesn't necessarily fall in line with what they're trying to achieve. And for the exploitation aspect of it, not everyone is going to be aware of it. I think when we talk about obviously making changes at the, at the higher levels, I think that's where, for me, diversity is really important. I think the problem sometimes when we talk about diversity is like, and it, black people do this as well, where they go, oh, we just need to see a black person there. No, it shouldn't be that way. It should be, we need to see the right black person there that understands what's, you know, what's going on. So for example, I just come back from, I was at the British Cycling Dinner. Um, it's last week, it's like a week ago, yeah. And I, I was very conscious, like, I'm the only sort of, you know, black person. I could literally, like, I counted maybe, if it, with, with the exception of the, the BMX athletes, I counted maybe two black people there in a room full of like, hundreds of people. And for me, it's it's startling because you can look at that and then go, crap, there's discrimination here. There's a lot of problems here. Like, what's going on? Or, or you can look at it through a mathematical equation. And I think, you know, if, if we got to be willing to have an open and honest conversation about these kind of things, and the reason why um, there isn't enough black people there is the reason why, for example, you may not see a black rider at the Tour de France. And it's not because the sport is inherently racist or it's trying to discriminate. It's just because there just isn't the talent pool to be able to put in those positions. So we have to be patient, but we also, so the, the key thing I guess is we have to be looking at the grassroots and when we can, we have to identify individuals. So for example, Team Ineos, for example, can give me a role in their squad, say today, right? Dave Brailsford calls me. He says, Manny, <laughs> we want you to ride with us. We want you to be our Tour de France champion. You know, just, I'll tell him, sorry, Dave, I appreciate the offer, but not for me. How many people will do that? There, I'm sure there'll be some individuals that'll be like, yeah, 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 I'll take it up, I'll take up on the offer. It's just like, and if I was to take that offer up, that would be very selfish of me and it would do more damage than it would do good because what would happen is a lot of people would see me struggle on stage one, on a flat stage, get dropped. And what? how does that help anyone? And that's what happens when you have individuals that are not quite prepared for the role and you elevate them. And I, and I see that happening in this space. And and I think that's what we've got to be sort of mindful of. Um, we've got to be patient enough to make sure we select the right individuals to be able to make the change. I think the problem is as well, when you see someone like, a, you see a European rider like Remco, and Remco gets to practice privately for years, you know, so he comes through as a under 12, under 13, he goes to a bike race, he drops out, he goes to a bike race the next weekend, he drops out, he goes to a bike race, he holds on. This process happens for years and years and years until the world's cameras focus and now the race is there and it's race day and it's Remco and it's like, oh my God, Remco's won the worlds. It's a miracle. We only see the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's the golf analogy. You see Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, they've drive the ball 350 yards straight down the fairway. You're like, it's a miracle. You don't see the decade of hard work in the driving range where they're shanking balls into the hedges. But what's happening with people of color 
And, you know, we've had uh, representation for the Imani project on the podcast. And this is a huge problem for them. I'm going over to ride the Evolution Gravel Race this year. Because what's happening for people from Kenya, they're coming across and they're being put into European races and they're having one chance, not that decade of progression like Remco's having, they're having one chance, a pressure-filled audition. And if you fail that audition, the entire public scrutiny and spotlight their poor performance in this audition, it vindicates everyone's biases and said, oh, you know, people of color just aren't cut out for cycling when there's no credence given to the two different paths that riders have had, white riders versus colored riders to get to that point where we judge the rider. Yeah, that and that's a great point. So I was thinking about Remco actually when you mentioned this. It was like, Remco, like a few years back, he was destroying the world championships, you know, the, um, the under-21s. <laughs> like absolute monster, great talent. And then but he still hasn't done the Tour de France. And it goes to show, like, you know, like, am I right in thinking that I don't think he was in the Tour de France last year? was it the Vuelta he won? Yeah. Yeah, he was Vuelta last year and Giro this year. Exactly. So you you've got that incredible talent and then he still needs time to be able to, you know, then move to the, you know, to be to compete in something like the Tour de France. People look at Binyam Gemay or something like that and they go, oh, you know, he should be in a Tour de France, da, 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 da. They don't understand the process. It's kind of similar to, to myself, for example. Like, I get a call out from the Ghana national squad and they're like, hey, you know, we want you to come race at the, you know, um, Commonwealth Games. And I'm like, okay, brilliant. Like, you know, that's fantastic. And like, we're hoping you'll win it for us. I'm like, I'm going up against G, Geraint Thomas, Lucas Plapp. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> there is no way in hell. Give me, even if, if, if I had a motorbike, I still wouldn't be able to beat them. <laughs> and, and, and it's just trying to explain that to them. And that's the thing. There is that culture shock. And I think from the black community at the moment, the culture understanding of cycling is not at the level that it's at when it comes to football, for example. Like I said, not a lot of people know about the dressing room. They don't know about the work it takes to actually become one of those riders. And so when they see stuff, they, they, they see progress not happening quickly. They're quick to go, oh, maybe it's a racism thing. But they don't understand the breakdown like that. You know, it's really difficult to, to, to make that transition. And you talk about the Imani project. That's it. That's, you know, a, a, a great project. You know, these riders, they come through and... And they're competing now with like, you know, the, the, the European scene is super competitive. You've got a lot of these guys, they've been competing from a young age, you know, and, you know, from the ages of like six, seven. And all of a sudden, these African riders who are, you know, and some of them are even second, third generation cyclists. Matthew Vanderpoel, not his dad is a pro cyclist. His granddad is a pro cyclist. He's coming from a really serious gene pool. And, you know, some some young, you know, Chris Froome is going to just, you know, turn up. Chris Froome is just like, you know, that, that's just another thing. But it, that kind of story is a superhero story. It's a, it's a superhero origin story where it's like some kid from the Serengeti comes into Europe and becomes a Tour de France champion. What that highlights is that there's definitely talent there. If given a shot, these African riders could really do something. But that should not negate the fact that this guy is like one in a million. You know, if you look at the European scene, let's just say there's 100,000 riders. And out of those 100,000 riders, so no, let's just say a million riders, out of those million riders that are riding the bikes in Europe, 
you know, no, but only a thousand can ever become professionals, for example. Let's just look at it that way. And then you compare that to black riders and you go, well, how many black riders are actually out there riding their bikes? Maybe a hundred thousand, let's say. Out of the hundred thousand, who's going to be the, that champion? Who's going, to, who's going to turn pro? So you got to look at it from that perspective or, or you're doing it a disservice, I guess. So the challenges is real. Um, but I think African riders, we definitely, they, they need they need support um, on the continent. And that's something that I'm trying to, you know, help with um, by promoting a lot of African cycling and also in the Caribbean. So where do you kind of see that going next um, for you and for BCN? Because I guess, you know, that that is where you want to be pushing to, to just, just I guess, sort of increase the reach and the openness um, of cycling to a whole other community or communities around, you know, around the world and different people from different backgrounds. But I guess you can't just keep doing what you're doing, or can you? Do you is that where you see yourself, just, just keeping on with BCN, keep pushing on with that? Or, I mean, yeah, you're not going to go to Ineos because you don't want to work with Dave Brailsford. That's clear. <laughs> but, however... I, 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 I never um, said if, that. Um... I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. I'm, jo- I'm joking. Dave joking, joking. But, um, <laughs> yeah, call him, call him. But um, I think it's now da- uh, Danielle um, Every who's now in charge of BC because um, Brian Face has stepped down in the Shell scandal thing. So if, if Danielle got in contact and said, I'd like you to come and you know, work as a kind of performance director at BC, would that be a job you'd be interested in? Because that could have kind of really, you know, wide-reaching grassroots connotations. BC is one of the few kind of sporting bodies, I guess, in the UK that could be described as a real grassroots success over the last 15, 15 or so years. That's a great question. I've got a few ideas of um, of how they can use some of that shell money. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think they're gonna make a deal with Shell. Um, my thing would be, yeah, if 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 I was um, to be offered that kind of role, I, I would definitely look at it. But I also like working within the grassroots. I like to that sort of outside in pressure because my my goal for BCN is not just to make it a London thing. I want to make it a global thing. I want to see BCN thrive, you know, in every city around the world. And ultimately, what I've done with BCN. It's coming to the sport, look at it through fresh eyes and go, okay, what works here? What doesn't work here? Let me try and take some of the best examples um, and implement it into a cycling club. And let me show some of these 100-year-old cycling clubs, um, you know, what you can achieve sometimes if you come at it through a, a different lens. And I think when I look at it, and I analyze it and assess it, I think I've achieved that goal because now you go a lot of cycling clubs who've been running for like over a century and now look at us and they go, they've changed the way they sort of, you know, uh, the package they deliver. So for example, you know, BCN got, you know, a bunch of volunteer ride captains and they're pretty much an extension of me. So you come into BCN, it's like, oh, okay, you know, you're going to feel that welcome. You're going to get that BCN love. You know, we're going to allow you to introduce yourself. Everyone's going to welcome you. And all the ride captains will make an effort to make you feel welcomed, um, to, to learn about your story. And then the second phase of it is quickly upskilling people. So I always say six months at BCN is equivalent to four years at another cycling club because you learn so much within that short period of time. You learn to ride like a pro. If you're a beginner, I want to leave you. So that first session you know how to ride safely on the road so you can come back next week. 
So if there's a traffic island, you know where to be. Own the roads, you know, indicate, communicate with the drivers behind you. And then when you pass that traffic island, wave them through. If there's a bus or obstacle in front of you, make sure, you know, you get into the middle lane sooner. Don't wait to the very end to try and do it. All these sort of conscious decisions is something that I've learned. And so I take those lessons and I pass it on to our riders. I think when we look at the future and how to really make a good change um, and to have cycling reflect um, society and to make cycling accessible for all, I think that at a high level, there's a lot of stuff that British cycling could do um, at the moment. For me, I'm just not seeing enough good work being done at the grassroots level. I feel like, you know, growing up in secondary school, every Friday we'd go swimming classes. I don't see why British cycling cannot invest and try and, you know, provide coaching for schools and kids all across the country. And also make it easy to be able to host training sessions and bike races. The scene is dying over here, you know, and the tour series just been cancelled. So we, we definitely got this. We got to do something about it. It can't just be fixated on the velodrome and stuff like that. It really, you know, cycling is dying. And if you're making that kind of money from, you know, if you're with that Shell sponsorship, I'm hoping that they can use that money towards, um, you know, building cycling back up in, in, in the UK. Manny, there's definitely a lot of work still to be done, but I suppose it's a nice jump off point to say you've also done a lot of good work to this point. So congratulations on all the good work up to this point with Black Cyclist Network. And thanks for joining us today on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thank you, Anthony. Pleasure. And I'll say this, if you're white and you're looking for a cycling club, don't let the irony fool you. Black Cyclist Network is more than welcoming space. (laughs) (laughs) We're, We're black in name only. It's just, it's just an advertising ploy. That's it. <laughs> Cheers, Manny. Brilliant. Thanks, Manny. So, Manny Arthur, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you again, Manny, for coming onto the show. I really enjoyed that chat. Uh, there's, yeah, an awful lot to kind of unpick and for cycling and sport in general, I think, just to, just to learn about itself and about how to serve the people that do it. Because basically... There ain't no people, there ain't no sport. And yeah, cycling, as I said at the top of the show, I personally found to be quite impenetrable at the beginning. And it kind of makes you feel quite alone, I guess, because you see all these other people doing it together. And then you sort of feel like you can't join them because you're just, you don't know cycling well enough or you don't, yeah, you don't feel like you've kind of got the fitness or the chops or whatever it is to warrant being able to hang out with people that take it really seriously and dress in all the white clothes and ride all the white bikes and say all the right things and do that thingy where they flick an elbow and someone comes around all that jazz all of that impenetrable cycling language but it's also the thing that kind of makes cycling great too but yeah if you want to join manny um at any time or bcn uh they do saturday morning rides um regents park which is in central london um at 8 a.m and they also do lots of other things through zwift um you can also buy the jerseys you can join the Strava club uh, they do training camps as well they'll probably be doing some training camps coming up again this year um, and yeah the point is they cater uh, to everyone everyone is included everyone is welcome so yeah go and join Manny on uh, a Saturday morning Regents Park spin and yeah tune into his uh, his YouTube channel and his Instagram as well because it's really good so um, yeah again thank you very much Manny this has been James Spender we don't know where Anthony is. I think he's lost under a pile of bricks. I uh, hope to see him next week. And this was the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Mm-hmm.
Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. And if you get an annual pass to GCN Plus now, you'll get a whole season's worth of action and pay less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. You'll be able to watch all of your favourite races, including Grand Tours, Monuments, Classics, Major Stage Races and more, live and ad-free on GCN Plus. That's including the resumption of the rivalry between Wout van Aert and Machi van der Poel at the Classics opener, Umlot Het Nieuwsblad. That's on the 25th of February. And Strada Bianchi on the 4th of March, where they'll also have Tajay Pojikar to contain with. Along with all the live action GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros like Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens, so you never need to miss a key cycling moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu slash cyclist15.